Is it on now? What do you know, huh? All right, we'll try that again. Okay, so we're going to be coming to the close. Well, we'll see. I don't know. We might not be coming to the close of the first part of the book of Isaiah. But again, Isaiah breaks down into three parts. The first book goes through chapter 34. It's called the book of the king. Then we're going to have a history. It's a history of uh, the nation uh, in regard to the Assyrian conquest. So right in the middle of Isaiah, there's going to be this section, this part where they put in, just like what we would read out of First and Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles, a history of what happened when Assyria actually came against them. The cool thing about that is this. As we go through these first 34 chapters, we're going to see over and over again Isaiah telling Judah that God's got their back and they don't need to worry about anything else. They just need to rely on him. But Judah, seeing Israel, the northern kingdom, taken into captivity by Assyria, and seeing Assyria begin their descent towards them, naturally, they're afraid that they're going to fall. And as we take a look at chapters 30, 31, we'll see if we get to 32 tonight, we're going to see them reaching out to make alliances. They're looking to make alliances, but what God is calling for them to do is to have their reliance on Him. They're looking to try to make some kind of partnership with all these other countries, other nations. And all the while, God's saying, hey, I'm right here. Why are you running to them? You need to run to me. So this is a lesson that Isaiah is going to be teaching uh, through as God continues to give him his word. So we'll begin in chapter 30 tonight. We'll begin in chapter 30, taking a look at uh, the prophecies that Isaiah was given. So we're in the midst of what's known as the six woes. In chapter 30 it says, Now woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel but not of me, who devise plans but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. He's saying they, they're going around asking opinions. Folks, don't we, don't we find ourselves doing the same thing today? I mean, oftentimes I will have talked to every friend I know, every person who, whose wisdom I value about a certain situation. I will have exhausted all opportunity to speak to everyone else. And then I pray. We got it backwards, right? And God wants us to realize that we have it backwards. He says, you come to me. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 are, are a couple of my most favorite verses. I know many folks in here, it's, it's their favorite verses too. But listen, it says to trust in the Lord with all your heart. And then to lean not in your own understanding. That means don't devise your own plans. Before you make your plans, God asks us, to in all our ways acknowledge Him. And what will He do? He will direct your steps. He will guide your path. He will make your path straight. All the different things that we see God doing in our life. Because prior, I'm first, when I'm first faced with the problem, 
what God wants me to do is to come to him and lay it down before him and say, Lord, I need to, to make some decisions in my life. But before I start making outlines and a list of pros and cons, before I start going all around looking for your or looking for other people's wisdom, I want you to guide me. And then the scripture says, believe that what God does from that point forward is guide you. But when we look at the book of James, James gives us some interesting insight. James said, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of the Lord and God will give him wisdom. But he says, let him ask, not doubting. For the man who doubts is a double-minded man. And when you do a careful word study of that under, or the understanding of the words for double-minded, it literally means a man who has already made up his mind but is now coming to the Lord. God says you're double-minded. It's too late to come to me. It's too late because you doubted whether or not I would guide you. You made your plans and now you come. And isn't that how we so often go to the Lord? We, just like the children of Israel here, just like Judah, they're seeking everyone's wisdom except the Lord. And God wants us to lay that aside and seek Him. What is it that Jesus said? Seek ye first the kingdom of God? And all these other things will be added unto you. All these other things we worry about. But we need to have God first in that rightful place in our lives. That, that our life to honor God, our living our lives to, to glorify Him, is our primary focus of the day. Then, you know, you can make your own priority list. I don't have to tell you how it should go. But God needs to be first. That's why when we say, have you given the Lord your first fruits? It's hard to give God the first fruits when the first moments you spend with Him are right before you go to bed. That's not first fruits. That's last fruits. He says, give to me your first fruits, first part of our day, just to acknowledge him. He's not asking for us to develop a three-point sermon with 17 pages of outline notes on some section of scripture to exegete a verse or, or to eisegete or to do some other, some other uh, exercise of hermeneutics. He's saying, listen, just acknowledge me. Hey, Lord, how are you? Those of us who have children, we often like it when our kids actually acknowledge us. Now, when they're little, it's cool because they always do. <laughs> and and I, every expert of child rearing I've ever met has had one thing in common. Little kids. Brother, you come talk to me when they're 17. And you tell me about how all those plans work. And maybe they work. Praise God. I hope that you find the answer. And if you do, write a book. Help the rest of us out. But the reality is the experts are those who, who haven't necessarily gone through all of those steps and, and seen all of that stuff happen in their lives. But listen, we, we keep our focus where it needs to be. We keep our focus on the Lord. We ask God to guide, direct, show us the way. He'll lead us through the maze of child rearing, won't he? He'll guide us through all of those steps. And in the end, we're just survivors. And those kids, they're just on loan. And what did he tell us in Deuteronomy chapter 6? Train up a child. Teach them. 
Teach them my word. Teach them my precepts. Teach them my law. So that they would learn who God is. What God wants. And how we can meet His requirements. And that's the call Lord gives to parents. He wants us to be moving forward in that way. Well, here in chapter 30 again... Judah's not doing that. They're devising wisdom. They're seeking wisdom everywhere else. So he says in verse 2, Who walk to go down to Egypt and have not asked my advice, to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh, and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. The interesting thing is, Egypt, throughout Scripture, folks, is a type, a picture of the world. And Egypt more than any other nation to the nation of Israel, was equated with death. It was, it was just a little while earlier, and they're casting their children to the crocodiles, remember? They're keeping them in slavery. Yet, God's saying, this is where you're going for help. It's like you're going to death to seek life. What are you doing? And you never even asked me. You never sought me. You never looked to me. You never, you never wondered what it was that I had for you. Therefore, in verse 3, the strength of Pharaoh will be your shame. And trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your humiliation. For his princes were at zone and his ambassadors came to Hanes. They were all ashamed of a people who could not benefit them or be help or benefit, but a shame and also a reproach. He's saying, listen, other people trusted in Egypt and they've already been conquered. What good did their alliance do? Didn't do them any good. They put their faith that Egypt was going to stand with them, but but Egypt kind of let them go. And Egypt's going to do the same thing. Egypt's going to fall. Egypt's not able to stand. Where do we put our trust? Where is our faith? Where, Where is it that we place our hope? He goes on in verse 6, the burden against the beasts of the south. Now, through a land of trouble and anguish, from, from which came the lioness and the lion, the viper and the fiery flying serpent, they will carry their riches on the backs of young donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people who shall not profit. Hey, there actually comes a time when Hezekiah gets this bright idea that he's going to try to bribe the Assyrians. And they're happy to take his money. They're happy to, to fill their caravan and put the, the backs of the camels filled with gold. But they're still coming. They just funded a little bit more of the military exercise that they're going to do against their own people. Again, God says, why are you devising plans and not coming to me. Why don't you seek me? Why don't you come toward me? For the Egyptians shall help in vain and to no purpose. Therefore I have called her Rahab Hem Shebeth. It means Rahab sits idle. What is it about Rahab that ushered in the scarlet thread of redemption? Did she do nothing? You remember when the spies came and Rahab hid the spies? And she hid them in a place and then she told them which way to go. And the spies said, listen, when the conquest comes, you hang a scarlet thread out of your window. And you'll be safe. 
And they said this, you and what else? All your household. Whoever was willing to come inside her house, who would believe her word that this little scarlet thread I'm hanging out the window is going to save us all, they would be saved. And you do know that Rahab enters into the lineage of the Messiah, right? She's one of Jesus' great, great, great grandmas down the way. But now he says, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call you Rahab sits idle. Doesn't do anything. She just sits around and, and, and hopes that things get better, never seeks the Lord, never moves forward, never makes any kind of decision or any kind of movement with the understanding or the knowledge that she's been given. Is Isaiah telling the people God's word? Here is the big problem for them. Rejection of God's word. Ultimately, Judah is saying, listen, Isaiah, we don't want to hear about this stuff anymore. And we don't want to hear about the Holy One. We got our own plans. And unbeknownst to them, they're going to provide a picture of the later fulfillment when Messiah is rejected because the nation says, we don't want this. We don't want the Holy One. Again, giving us examples now, showing, painting us pictures of the need to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, up until verse 8, God's attention, His focus has primarily been on Egypt. But, but now, He's going to turn His attention primarily to Judah. He says, now go, write it before them on a tablet. Note it on a scroll that it may be for a time to come forever and ever. He's saying, Isaiah, you take this prophecy that you've been given, telling the people to seek me, telling the people to call on me. You write it on a tablet, put it in a scroll, post it up all over the town so that they'll see it and know forever and ever. I told them this. I called to them. I reach out to them. Make a public record of the message that you've been given. That this is a rebellious people. Here's a message. That this is a rebellious people. Lying children. Children who will not hear the law of the Lord. Who say to the seers. Who are the seers? The seers are, are the... The, the, well, the only word in my head right now is witch doctor. That ain't right. But like mediums, uh, false prophets, those who are seeking wisdom from the occult or from the dead. You, you say to the seers, do not see. You say to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. They're saying, listen, we don't want to hear the truth. We don't want to hear the truth. What is it that Paul writes in Timothy? That the time will come. When they won't endure sound doctrine. But because of itching ears, they'll pile up for themselves teachers that do what? Say the things they like to hear. Well, this is what's going on in Judah. They're saying, hey, we don't want to hear the truth. We don't want to hear nothing from the seers. The prophets, stop prophesying. Stop telling us what God says. Stop telling us what God's doing. Stop all those things. Keep your focus uh, uh, in, in another place. Because really, they want to replace the Word of God with their own Word. This is what God's Word says. We don't really like that. So prophets, be quiet. Seers, stop seeing. 
Everybody stop, and here's the approved message. Those days are coming. Look around in your world today. Those days are coming. The days will come when the Word of God will not be allowed. It has already come in some places. Where the Word of God cannot and will not be received as it is written, nor can you teach what it says. Those days come. That's what Judah was doing. Rejecting God's Word, part one. Part two, replacing God's Word with their own concept. Their own ideas. Don't we see that in our own world? Don't we see that happening around us today? And then ultimately in verse 11, the reject the Holy One. Look, get out of the way, turn aside from the path, cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. And we don't want to see the Holy One. We don't want to know the Holy One. We're tired of hearing the Holy One. Isaiah, we're tired of hearing what you're saying. We don't want to receive God's Word. Just earlier, last week when we were studying, God said that the reason blindness has come upon the nation is because they refuse the Word. And if you refuse the Word, you'll be blind. What does the Bible say? Those things written for us in the Word, they cannot be understood by the natural man. Why? Because they're spiritually discerned. If I look in the Word of God to receive God's Word to me, the Lord will show me. He will open my eyes. But if I come to the Word of God with a closed mind, closed heart, ah, this is dumb, this is stupid, I'm not going to see anything. I won't see a thing. That's what happened in Israel. Reject God's Word, replace God's Word with their own concepts, and then we don't want the Holy One before us at all. We don't want Him to be a part. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel... (laughs) God has a message. Because you despise this word and you trust in oppression and perversity and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you. Okay, he's going to give us two examples. First he says, you despise. So here is what is, what is the cause of your choices. Folks, I will always have a struggle with Calvinism Or people who think there's no choice in life. Because God himself took the children of Israel to the valley of decision. And he said to them, these are the blessings on your left hand. These are the cursings on your right hand. Choose which way you will go. Did God just say choose? Then apparently we have choice. Because God wouldn't tell us something we couldn't do. Choose. And then God said, choose life. That was the encouragement that the Lord gave. Well, here he says, these are the results of your choice. The choices that you've made. Here are the results of those choices. Because you trust in oppression and perversity. In the Hebrew, literally it means because you trust in the crooked way. Whatever way is crooked. You don't want the straight way. You want the crooked way, the perverse way, the strange way. And you rely on them. This is the iniquity. Two examples. Example one. Like a breach ready to fall, a bulge on a high wall, when breaking comes suddenly in an instant. First example is a wall falling under its own weight. That wall that is just over time crumbled, bulged, and one day, it just comes down. It just comes down. And then 
the second example, verse 14. And he shall break it like the breaking of the potter's vessel. So the second example is like a pot broken by an outside force. So what is he saying? He's saying this, your choice, the sin that's in your life is going to destroy you and bring judgment. The wall, destroyed by itself. The pot speaks of judgment. The sin will destroy you. The choices we make. You know, when people think, oh, come on. I mean, really, what's the big deal? It's just a simple choice. I used to tell kids, I used to tell the kids in, in youth group and that played for my football team, we had an example of a, an event where a bunch of kids were over at somebody's house having a party. And a group of six of them decided that they were going to leave and go swimming at somebody else's house. Is there anything wrong with that? No. Nothing wrong with it. Six kids get in a car and they head to this guy's house. What they didn't know is that a group of other kids that are from the same area, they all knew each other, they'd been drinking and partying over here and they were going to go get more beer. And they were racing down the street, one car on one side of the double yellow line, another car on the other side of the double yellow line, coming around a corner when that other car was coming up. Head-on collision, Eight kids from the same community in three different hospitals. Broken necks, broken femur. Thank God nobody died. We had people ejected in the street, in the road. All kind of horrible things all over the place. Now, the six kids who decided they were going to go swimming. Do you think any of them said, Lord, should we go swimming tonight? Oh, come on, it's a little thing. It's a simple choice. Do our choices carry ramifications we can't even understand? If we can't even understand the ramifications of our choices, then why do we think we have the ability to make those choices make sense? Apart from and simply by asking the Lord, before I make this decision, Lord, guide me. Now, if they had done that, does that mean they wouldn't get an accident? Of course not. Because some of those kids went forward with the Lord and their lives were improved because of the accident. And some of them weren't. And I don't know which ones were part of God's plan and which wasn't. All I know is I would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that that was supposed to happen to them that night had they prayed and said yeah you know we prayed jackie and so we decided to go swimming right on god says if you seek him he'll he'll guide you so he he guided you to that place you guys remember the story of lot and abraham right abraham and lot their herds are so big they can't get along so one day they're standing on that cliff and they're overlooking the valley wow the valley is beautiful just like where we live, only more holy. They're overlooking this valley, and Abraham says to Lot, Lot, choose what way you want to go, and I'll go the other way. You get first choice, Lot. Where do you want to be? You know what the Bible says? He lifted up his eyes to the cities of the plain, the five cities of the plains, and decided that was where he should live. You remember the name of the cities? I bet you remember two of them. Sodom and Gomorrah. Did he pray first? Nope. 
Did he ask the Lord, God, where do you want me to live? Did his choice carry ramifications? Do you realize he lost everyone? His wife? His sons? His daughters become the mothers of the two greatest enemies of the entire nation of Israel. The Ammonites and the Moabites. All based on one choice. Just a little thing, right? But you see, we don't really know what's little, do we? God is saying to His people, guys, just seek Me first. I'm not going to tell you not to make a decision. Just seek Me and let Me guide you. Come to Me first and let Me show you the way. But because you won't, because you're doing your own thing, then sin is going to destroy you and judgment is going to come. And that's the example he gives in the falling wall and the, and the pot that's going to be smashed. And then he goes on and says, Now, this pot which is broken in pieces, he shall not spare, so there shall be found among its fragments a shard to take fire from the hearth or to take water from the, eastern, the, or the cistern. There's not going to be anything left. It's going to be wiped out. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel. You notice how he keeps emphasizing that. They just said, take the Holy One from before us. So now when the Lord speaks, he's saying, I'm the Holy One. I, I want you to make sure you understand who you're rejecting. You're not rejecting Isaiah. You weren't rejecting Moses. You're rejecting me. And then he says this. Look at verse 15. So incredible. In returning and rest you shall be saved. That word for in returning, literally it's the same concept as repent. To return, what does that mean? If I'm walking this way, repentance simply has the idea that I stop, turn, and go the other way. Remember when Jesus was speaking to the church in Ephesus who had left their first love. What did he tell them to do? Remember those things that you have done. Repent and return. He wants them to change their direction. So listen, he says here in verse 15, hey, in returning and rest, you'll be saved. Repent. Repent and enjoy the peace of God that passes understanding. Because no matter how crazy the storm is, I prayed, Lord, the storm's still blowing, then I'm going to keep rowing. That's what God calls us to do. You remember when the disciples learned that, right? First time across the Sea of Galilee, rowing in a boat, big storm, Jesus sleeping. The disciples run down, Lord, Lord, don't you care? We're perishing. Jesus said, oh, ye of little faith. He sat up and said, peace be still. Water's like glass. Wind stops blowing. Peter says, who are you that the waves and the wind even obey your voice? Depart from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. Later on, the Lord says to the disciples, go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, I'll meet you over there. Okay, Lord, they get in the boat and they start going. But you know, sure enough, as soon as they get to the middle, what happens? Tempest, storm, wind blowing. The Bible tells that Jesus went to a mountain to pray. There's a mountain overlooking the Sea of Galilee. You go on this mountain and you can see the whole thing. And most people believe that's the mountain Jesus went on to pray. There's nothing there. It's a beautiful place. You go on top of this mountain, there's nothing there but a rock. 
Nobody built a big old crazy church or some sign that said Jesus was here. They just left it. And you can go up in there and look out over the whole Sea of Galilee. And as Jesus is looking out over the Sea of Galilee, did he see the storm? Sure he did. Did he know that they were in a, in a spot, in a pickle? Sure he did. But you know what the disciples were doing? Rowing. They're rowing. And they kept rowing until Jesus came to them. That's the night Jesus walked on water. Peter got out of the boat. That's the night. But what were they doing? Panicking, crying. Lord, don't you care about us? No. What they learn? At any moment, God can say, peace be still. So if he has me in the storm, I'm in a storm for a reason. Can I trust him, the one who died for me? Sure I can. I know the thoughts that he thinks toward me, thoughts of good and not of evil, to give me a future and a hope. Isn't that what Jeremiah said? Jeremiah 29, 11. Then the scriptures declare to us that all the promises of God in Christ Jesus to you and I are yes and amen. That's what it says. Now we put our faith and trust in Him. All we have to do, all they have to do is return and find that peace in the midst of the storm. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength. The saddest phrase ever. The next part. What does it say? But you would not. Um, How many times has God's heart broke over that soul that the Lord's just calling out to? Holy Spirit is convicting him. He's, He's put people in front of this guy, doing everything he can to stop him from walking off the edge of the cliff. To tell him, turn around, change your direction. I want to spend eternity with you. But he would not. And that's sad. The Lord says that's all that has to happen. If, if we find ourselves out of sync with the Lord, what do we have to do? 1 John 1, 9, right? Confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We lay it out before Him. He makes us clean. He gives us a new day. We try again. That's what He's saying here. That's all you have to do, but you would not. So you said, No, for we will flee on horses. Therefore, you shall flee. We will ride on swift horses. Therefore, those who pursue you, they shall be swift. One thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you shall all flee. Till you are left as a pole on the top of the mountain and as a banner on the hill. They're saying, listen, this, listen, this is what they're saying. Not, nah, Lord, we got a big army. We got state-of-the-art chariots. We got the best spears and swords money can buy. Emissarians don't know what they're doing when they come mess with us. And the Lord says, it's only going to take five of them to make you flee. Where's your trust? Is your trust, is your hope, is your trust today in our country, in the military power or prowess that we've had? Because, folks, we're unproven. You do understand that, right? 200 years is not history. 
especially when you're dealing with countries that are thousands of years old. We think we got it all figured out. We ain't even been around the block once yet. We put all our faith and trust in our military might, but does that work? Does our military power and prowess help us in Afghanistan? Do we really think that when we sat on the sidelines and watched Russia get their tail handed to them by the Afghanistan, by Afghanistan, that we'd go in and it'd be different? Why? Folks, Afghanistan is a giant cliff rock mountainous region and everybody lives in caves. I don't care you got a smart bomb. Send your smart bomb. Blow up on the outside of the cave. I'll still come walking out with the, my little IED and blow up two soldiers and I'm satisfied. Get your hope in your, in your, in your placing it in the wrong place if it's in our military might. Where's our hope? Who's our hope? The Bible says our blessed hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our blessed hope. He's Israel's hope. And he wants us in studying this to realize, hey man, God, he's the one in whom we trust. Not in all this other stuff. And look at the end where it says, till you are left as a pole on the top of a mountain and a banner on a hill. What's he saying there? He's saying, listen, you're going to have this big banner and these poles up and the, the army all laid out. But when the battle's over, all that's left is that pole sticking in the ground, a little flag waving and no people anywhere. And the only thing to mark the fact that you've been on this earth is that little pole blowing in the wind. Until it blows away. Those things aren't eternal. Don't put your hope in military might. Don't put your hope in that, in that kind of power. Put your hope and trust in Jesus Christ. Therefore, I love verse 18. Therefore the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you. Do you hear what he just said? The Lord says, okay, you don't want me. You're rejecting me. You don't want the truth. Okay, I'll wait. I'm here. You call me. Man, if it was up to me, I'd have said, that's it, I'm done with you, brother. Get. Pound sand. See ya later. Bye. But the Lord says, hey, I'll wait so that I can be gracious to you. So that I can give something you don't deserve so i can bless a people that don't deserve it that's grace that's what god's promising to give man as you as you think about what he's saying here in isaiah i'm reminded of hosea so i'm going to run over to hosea you can join me if you want it's hard to do with only two thumbs I'm trying to get my fingers in play, but they're not playing with me. Hosea's got this super cool, I love it so much verse. And I just know I'm going to remember it when I see it. There it is. Hosea chapter 5, verse 15 through... uh, chapter 6 verse 2 the Lord says in verse 15 
I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. So come, let us return to the Lord. For He has torn, but He will heal us. He was stricken, but He will bind us up. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will raise us up that we may live in His sight. I love that section of Scripture because beyond the prophetic effects of what Hosea is saying, first he says, the Lord says, I will return. I'm going home. What does that imply? That he's been here. I will return until you acknowledge your offense. In your affliction, in the storm, you'll call out to me. And then I love chapter 6 where he says, Come, let us return to the Lord. It's the people talking. For he has torn, but he will heal. So that speaks of, of that chastisement of the Lord. The chastisement of the Lord where he's torn, but not to destroy. He's torn, and he will heal us. And then look at this. He is stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he'll revive us. And on the third day, he'll raise us up. Incredible, incredible scripture. And when I think about the Lord saying in, in Isaiah, therefore the Lord will wait that he may be gracious unto you. That's what I see. That's what I think of. Hosea chapter 5. I'll return to my place until you acknowledge. And in your affliction, you'll call out to me. And though I have torn or though I have smitten, God will bind them up. And therefore, in Isaiah 18, therefore, he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. And blessed are those who wait for him. Those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. Isn't that what Isaiah is going to tell us in a while? They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. They'll walk and will not faint. Those who wait on the Lord. You know, I think sometimes we picture wait as sitting around and staring into the blank emptiness of our mind waiting for something to happen. I would suggest maybe we try a different approach. What if you wait on the Lord like a waiter? Those who wait on the Lord. Those who press into Him. Those who look for opportunity to serve Him. To honor Him. To glorify Him. A lot of times, I think that's how I see this concept that the Scripture talks about. Blessed are those who wait for Him. But I see it not as, a, as waiting, but as a waiter waiting. It's the same word. Same definition. The difference, though, is the picture we get in our mind, right? That we're looking for that opportunity to reach out, that opportunity to serve. Verse 19, he goes on, For the, for the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. Now those, are, by the way, are both the same place. Jerusalem's built on Mount Zion. Or it's called Mount Zion. It's called a couple other things too. But, but Jerusalem, the city of David, they're all on the side of, of Mount Zion. 
So the people shall dwell in Zion and Jerusalem. You shall weep no more, for he will be very gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. Now, what we fail to understand when we call out on the Lord and he answers us is we fail to understand that sometimes we're right where we're supposed to be. And there's no easy way around it or over it. You just got to go through it. And that's an answer. When I call on the Lord, if in faith I pray, and the situation remains, then I can say, I'm where you want me to be, Lord. All right. Bring on the rain. Let the storm blow. It won't destroy. What will it do? It'll make me stronger. It'll help me in my walk with you. It'll help me accomplish the things that you're calling me to do. And this is what he's saying. And though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore, but your eyes shall see your teachers. Remember, what's the issue? They don't want to hear the Word of God anymore. They don't want to see the Word of God anymore. They don't want to see the Holy One. The Lord's saying, the day will come where your eyes will be open. And he, I love how he says, and though I gave you the bread of adversity. What's that mean? That adversity is the bread of His people. Look at the nation of Israel. Is there any other people group on the face of the planet that has faced more adversity? Good luck trying to come up with one. Jerusalem, which means city of peace, is the city in the midst of the most war of any city on the face of the earth. I have a question to ask you. Why? What's there? If you've never been there, I'll tell you what's there. Rocks. There's no oil. There's nothing that anybody wanted. In fact, before May 14, 1948, nobody cared about the area of Israel. But from the beginning of history, man has fought over that piece of ground. You know why? It's God's city. He said, that's mine. That's why. That's why. Satanic. It's satanic. The hatred against the people, the hatred against the place. And it will always be that way until the return of the king. That's Jesus Christ. He comes back to rule and reign. The city of peace will finally know peace. Until then, it's just going to be something else. So the Lord says, I've given you adversity for your bread and affliction for your water. God loves them. But he gave him adversity for bread and affliction for water. Some of us today are getting our bellies full of adversity and affliction. Doesn't mean God hates you. I used to think that. I used to think when bad things happened, that meant God hate me. I'd done something wrong. I'd go, I'd even walk around and say, God hates me. Kathy'd say, He doesn't hate you. Oh, yeah, He hates me. He hates me. God hates me. Yeah. 
the sky is falling, you know, whatever, pin the tail on Eeyore. The, the whole point being, we need to recognize in the furnace of affliction, God makes a beautiful ornament out of our lives. But he builds it in the furnace of affliction. And we have to be willing to, to understand that's how we're made. So he says, your eyes will see. In verse 21, your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left. And that is the coolest thing ever. I've heard that voice. We call that the still small voice of God right there. Oh, you'll, you'll be walking and your ears will hear a word as though it's behind you. I got out of my truck one day and I was walking into a job that, that was great, was cool. I mean, I had more money than I could spend, so I had to give it to Kathy <laughs> to see if she could do it. Sure I, uh, she, she did better than I did. But I was never home and I felt the call of the Lord on my life and I'd be working out of town. I, I, I don't remember the kids from the time they were born till. I don't even even know when I came home. They were probably eight or nine, ten years old by then. Might have been sixteen or seventeen. How old were they? Three. They were. Do you know? Nine. Nine. So my oldest was nine. My youngest was six. I was not home one weekend. That time. Didn't take one vacation. Didn't take a day off. I worked and worked and worked because that's what you do. But all the while, God's, I could feel God pulling on my heart and working things, and I wanted to go back to school. I wanted to go to Bible college, and I couldn't do that with where, where I was. And I remember I got out of the car, and, I'm, and really I'm just seeking God. Lord, I, I, you know, whatever, whatever you have for me. And I got out of my car, and as I'm walking in, that voice behind you that he's talking about right here told me the day, the time, and to put in my notice, which was like three or four months away from that time. And it, I wasn't thinking it. I wasn't looking for it. I wasn't even thinking about it. But I, I, you can bet I, I listened. And he fed me <laughs> adversity and affliction for the next couple of years after that. But it was good because I was where God wanted me to be, doing what God wanted me to do. So I love how he says this. Hey, you'll be walking and you'll hear this voice behind you. You will also defile the covering of your images of silver, the, the ornaments of your molded images of gold. You will throw them away as an unclean thing and you will say, get away. He's saying you're going to throw away all your idols. All those, the, the Hebrew word is kind of cool. The Hebrew word for idol is not gods. You'll throw away all your not gods. You just get rid of all of them. We got a lot of not gods in our life, huh? I have to remind myself every once in a while, that's not God. That's not God either. Sometimes God takes the not gods away. The shiny chrome ones with big <laughs> handlebars. <clears throat> Anyhow. <clears throat> Verse 23, then he, will give, then he will give rain for your seed with which you sow the ground. And bread of the increase of the earth. It will be fat and plentiful in the day your cattle will feed in large pastures. 
Likewise, the oxen, the young donkeys that work the ground, will eat cured fodder, which has been winnowed with the shovel and fan. And there will be on every high mountain and on every high hill rivers and streams of water in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. What's he talking about? He's talking about the end, man. When it's all over, everything goes back. The curse is lifted. The earth once again will be fruitful like she was in Eden. I'm reminded of, of Eden when, it, when I travel to the Amazon rainforest. I often said, in Amazon, you will have to try to starve yourself. Because you walk down the Amazon River, I ain't lying, there is food everywhere. Every tree has fruit. Some you never heard of, some they haven't even named yet. But it's good. You just pull it out the tree and eat it. That's how it was in the garden. Man didn't, didn't bring up the, the produce from the ground by the sweat of his brow like he does now. Man, man watered and the good stuff grew. Man waters now and the bad stuff grows. And the good stuff don't seem like it ever wants to come up. We're learning. Huh, babe? Yeah, something like that. We're going to have a, a, this year we might have a dirt garden. Because I could be successful with a dirt garden. Growing, just growing dirt. <laughs> I think I'm going to have weeds either way. He goes on, verse 26. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun. The light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days in the day that the Lord binds up the bruise of his people and heals the stroke of their wound. He's going to heal up the land, heal up the people. The sun will always give forth its light. What's it say? Seven, seven times, right? The light of the sun will be sevenfold. What's number seven? Seven's the number of completeness. The sun's going to do exactly how it was intended to be in the beginning. The moon reflects what? The sun. The moon's going to reflect the sun. It's going to be brighter. It's going to be... I love going out when there's that full moon and it looks like the lights are on outside. You know what I mean? It's beautiful. It's dark and you can see. That's what he's talking about. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger. And his burden is heavy. His lips are full of indignation and his tongue like a devouring fire. Now in verse 27, he turns his attention to Assyria. And whenever God talks about indignation, that is his wrath. I don't think we have even the slightest understanding of what the wrath of God looks like. I don't think we get it. But the wrath of God is, is all bad. His breath is like an overflowing stream which reaches up the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of futility. And there shall be a bridle in the jaws of the people, causing them to err. He's shaking the nations. Now, he, you can see he's looking into the battle that's going to occur, and we'll read about it in 35, 36, or 7, 38, when the battle of Shennacherib comes. They're going to make mistakes because God's going to lead them in error. But we're also reminded us of, of Revelation chapter 19 that says, why do all the nations, well, Psalm 2 says, why do all the nations rage? Why do all the nations gather in the plains of Megiddo, in the valley of Jezreel? Why do they all come to Armageddon? God says, I put a hook in their mouth and I bring them. I'm going to lead them. 
I'm going to cause them to err. They're all going to come for the day of that final battle. And you, now looking at Judah, you shall have a song as in the night when a holy festival is kept and gladness of heart when one goes with a flute to come into the mountain of the Lord to the mighty one of Israel. He's saying, hey, you're going to be filled with festivity, songs, because they will never have to worry when God is their, when God is their refuge, when He is their strong tower. There's no reason to go anywhere else but to Him. But the Lord will cause His glorious voice to be heard and show the descent of His arm with the indignation of His anger and the flame of a devouring fire with scattering tempest and hailstones. That should remind you of the book of Revelation from chapter 6 through 19. As God pours out His indignation that His arm can reach that man will not always, that God will not always strive with man. He said that way back in Genesis chapter 6. I will not always strive with man. He goes on, For through the voice of the Lord, Assyria will be beaten down as he strikes with the rod. And in every place where the staff of punishment passes, which the Lord lays on him, it will be with tambourines and harps. And in battles of brandishing, he will fight with it. For Tophet was established of old. Yes, For the king it is prepared. He has made it deep and large. Its pyre is fire with much wood. And the breath of the Lord like the the stream of brimstone. For Tophet. Tophet. God says, long time ago, I designed the funeral pyre for Assyria. It's called Gehenna. The valley of Hinnom. Gehenna. A word Jesus used to describe hell. Prepared from of old. Fire and brimstone from the Lord is the fuel. And God says, I've made it for the king. The Assyrian king. Shennacherib, at this time when it's given. But who else does it remind us of? Who else has a special place in Gehenna prepared for him? From of old, the Antichrist, false prophet, the beast. That their eternal resting place will be the lake of fire. That place of total absence of of everything that is God. But here he's saying, listen, Tophet, the funeral pyre was established from old. Hey, he's walking right into a funeral pyre. I'm going to take care of him. For this king it has been prepared, and he made it deep and large. Ultimately, this is going to be primarily fulfilled when the Lord strikes down 185,000 Assyrians in one night. From 701 B.C. to the end of their history, Assyria ceases to be a world power from that moment forward. In one night, God takes them out. It'll be deep and large. It's Pyre is fire with much wood, and the breath of the Lord like a stream of brimstone. That's what kindles it. So God laying out for his people, hey guys, I I have a plan, I'm doing this, but if you reject, you're going to be blind. If you reject, you're going to be deaf. If you reject, 
you're going to be lost. But all the while, God says, but listen, I'm just going to sit back and wait. I'm going to be gracious to you. I'm going to give good things. And that's what he did. And as we continue, we'll see it evident in the battle against Assyria, but even more so, we'll see it evident in our own lives. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank you that we can come before you. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that the book of Isaiah is living and powerful. It has so much to teach us. So many things in it. Wow, we could spend a lifetime studying the book and it would not be a waste. Lord, as we look to it, Father, we pray that you would help us make application of that which we see in here. That we would not be like the nation of Israel crying out, I don't want to hear anything else about this Holy One. But that we would truly understand what it is to wait on you. To make you the center of our life. That you're the reason we get up in the morning. That you're the reason we smile. Even in the midst of whatever is going on, Lord, you are everything. Lord, we thank you for that perfect plan that you had. That you show us throughout the Old Testament and into the New to save to work your special work of salvation. Lord, work it in our lives that we would learn the lessons laid out for us by those who went before and that we, Father, learning those things would move forward in victory, bringing honor and glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.